Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source weekly news recap. I'm your host Nick, and this is a show where we discuss everything that happened last week in the Linux, open source, privacy, and open web space. And this week we have a lot of bad news. Uh, first we have Nintendo suing the makers of the Yuzu Switch emulator, arguing that it facilitates piracy on a large scale. We've got the NVIDIA CEO saying that kids shouldn't learn how to code because AI will do all the coding in the future. But we also have some good news, with Plasma 6 being released, or GNOME making progress on some great features, the NVK drivers reaching stable status and gaining new features, Thunderbird making progress as well, and a bunch of other things. So as always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, I left all the links to the articles I used to compile this podcast down in the show notes. And if you want to help this show continue and you want to support it, there are plenty of links in the show notes as well. And if you become a Patreon subscriber or a YouTube member at any tier starting at $1 per month, you will also get a daily podcast with all of these news from Monday to Friday. So let's get started. Okay, let's begin with the bad news. Nintendo decided to sue the makers of Yuzu. Yuzu is an open source Switch emulator, very, very popular. The company filed a lawsuit in the US, arguing that basically there's no legal way to use Yuzu as an emulator, and so in itself the project is illegal. And we all know that emulation has been a gray area in legal terms for a while. Emulating games in itself isn't illegal if you own a copy of that game yourself. But running downloaded ROMs with an emulator is basically piracy. And sometimes to run the emulator, even with a legally obtained copy of a game, you need specific decryption keys or specific BIOS files that shouldn't be freely available and that you might not legally be allowed to grab from your own devices. And so basically you're circumventing copyright protections which might or might not be fair use depending on where you live, if you have fair use laws, and basically it depends on rulings that are on a case-by-case basis. So in the case of Yuzu, Nintendo argues that the emulator needs to run illegally obtained decryption keys from a Nintendo Switch, and without these keys, no games could be played. They also say that most websites that do provide pirated copies of games link to Yuzu as the way to play them, and that Yuzu is profiting from this, earning at least $50,000 in paid downloads, although we don't really know what they mean by paid downloads, because as far as I know, you cannot really buy Yuzu, so maybe they're referring to like one-time donations. And they're also saying that the team's Patreon earns them $30,000 per month, which is a sizable sum of money, and so they're asking for damages and for the courts to shut down the entire project. And as always, no one is surprised by this, Nintendo is and has always been one of the most terrible companies when it comes to suing, intimidating, season desisting projects. They have a long history of this, and yes, sure, emulators can be used to run pirated copies of games, but it's not all they can do. It's the same argument as with something like YouTube Downloader. The tool in itself just lets you download a YouTube video. It's the use of the tool that can be illegal or circumvent a user license agreement. So I hope Yuzu manages to go to trial and hopefully win, because 
In theory, you could obtain the decryption keys from your own switch and use that to run Yuzu. And I'm pretty sure that in most countries, grabbing these keys from your own device wouldn't be considered something illegal. But I am afraid that, confronted with an army of lawyers that Nintendo has at its disposal, they will probably not want to risk it and they will probably fold. We'll have to see how it goes, but it could be an opportunity for emulators to get a win that could serve as a precedent for future cases, but it could also be a precedent that emulators are in general considered illegal and would basically put a stop to emulation as well, so that would kind of suck. I don't know which way it's gonna go. I haven't seen any answers from the Yuzu project, so I don't know what their intentions are. They're probably seeking legal counsel at the point, uh, at the moment, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, thanks Nintendo, you're just ruining everyone's fun for pennies. Great. Our second piece of bad news, or at least the continuation of the series, stupid thing CEO said. Uh, this one might really take the cake. Nvidia CEO Jensen Huang argued that coding is no longer a skill that kids should learn, and that people should just not bother anymore because AI will do all the coding by the time they're able to find a job. He instead says that humans should focus on other, more useful areas of work since anyone will be able to code anything by just talking with an AI. And we can't expect much more from a company that has, I think, tripled their value uh, ever since they started building AI accelerator hardware. They're all in on this. They just love AI and they're making a ton of money over this, or at least investors are estimating that they will make a ton of money with this. Uh, so obviously, obviously the CEO is going to tout AI as the future of coding, but it is just absolute nonsense. First, an AI itself needs code to feed into its model. I'm sure that no one would argue that every single good piece of code, every single interesting way of writing code has ever been written. No one would argue that there is no further coding language that will be created at some point and that will be usable by humans. And I think no one would argue that we'll never be able to make any better code than we already have. So limiting ourselves to what's already created and hoping that the AI will itself create better code is a very narrow view. Now second, if no one knows how to code, who is checking what the AI is producing or who is debugging it? Because current code produced by AIs seems to point out that they are not quite able to write well-optimized, bug-free and safe code. Apparently, the introduction of AI-generated code has created a ton of vulnerabilities and security flaws, according to a bunch of recent research. And third, AIs need to be programmed as well. Unless you're thinking that the current models will never need to evolve, you do need developers to write those models. Less developers means less people to work on the AI itself. So what Nvidia CEO is offering is a world where AI writes code for humans without anyone to check that code and letting AIs learn how to improve based on their own code. So the only thing you'll have to feed the AI is its own code, so it's not learning anything new. It's not an enticing world, in my opinion. I think it's just rich person saying dumb thing again to basically ride the current wave of AI, but I just could not resist mentioning it. Even with huge improvements to the AI tools that we have today, it is still a man-made system and it needs human oversight and maintenance and revisions and improvements. So this is just 
pure nonsense. Whether you love AI or not, no one can ever believe that right now we should stop learning how to code. It's just weird and dumb. Now, we have some better news with the release of KDE Plasma 6. It was released this week, and of course, I have a dedicated video about that on my YouTube channel. Check it out. The, the link to the channel is in the show notes of, of this podcast. Uh, I covered every single major change, but I will still give you the gist of it here if you're not interested in video content. So first, Plasma 6 moved entirely to Qt 6, and to Wayland by default. Qt 6 is basically the new version of the libraries and frameworks that they use. They, they need to move to that if they want to keep up with development. It also brings performance improvements, better support for various graphical uh, applications and tools. It's a good move, and it took them a while. And also they moved to Wayland as the default. Uh, they still support X11. Uh, you can still ship a Plasma with X11 in your distro. You're not forced to use Wayland if you don't want to but their main focus will be to bring new features to Wayland. If they can bring them to X11, and if there's someone interested in doing so, they might also bring them to X11, but mainly it's going to be Wayland-focused for now. Now, on top of that, the desktop saw a bunch of improvements and features. The theme was revamped a very tiny bit. It still looks like Breeze, it's not a major departure, but it is more legible. There are less borders and frames circling everything. Uh, there's no blue highlights inside of each frame that you're clicking, and it makes applications look a bit better. Instead of having nested panels inside of, inside of apps, you'll just have one pixel separators. It just looks more legible. You also get a new combined overview and present windows effect that is basically exactly the same as the GNOME activities view, and it also has better touchpad gestures. In my experience, it's been really, really good, much better than the previous effects. It doesn't feel like it's something that has been tacked onto the desktop. It feels like you're actually interacting with the desktop itself. It feels like it's plasma moving, your windows moving, instead of triggering a specific effect that takes over your current Plasma desktop. I don't really know how to explain it, but it does feel uh, more seamless. You also get the desktop cube back, if you like that. It's not super usable, but it is pretty. Uh, the desktop also now supports HDR on Wayland, plus color profiles, and it has a color blindness correction filters for a bunch of forms of color blindness. And the defaults were also changed to make the desktop easier to grasp for newcomers. So if you install a pure Plasma session uh, right now for Plasma 6, you will get single click to select and double click to open by default, which is what most people are used to. Uh, probably not the best solution. Single click to open makes more sense in a vacuum, but since most people are used to double click to open, it makes more sense to go with that. They now have a thumbnail grid in the Alt-Tab switcher instead of the weird column layout that they had before, they have floating panels by default, and these floating panels gained a much better configuration interface to actually change how the panel looks, where it sits, how it interacts. You gained an auto-hide feature that the panel didn't have. There are some improvements all around. Uh, the settings, as always, have been completely revamped and moved around and merged and improved, and KRunner is now much faster, and you can also reorder the, uh, the elements uh, that KRunner will use to display results, meaning that you can have, for example, applications always come first, documents second, favorites third, etc, etc. Most default apps also received improvements, and basically every single KDE app that is part of KDE Gear compilation received a bunch of updates and features. And it is a very, very good release. It's not a lot of new features for a full year of development, if I'm honest, 
but they also focused on stability and getting rid of bugs, and using a brand new install of Plasma 6 does work really well. I've seen a bunch of people saying that upgrading in place in KD Neon, for example, yielded a bunch of bugs and problems, but just installing KD Neon as is, or Fedora 40 in my experience, was pretty much bug-free. There are obviously going to be some issues, but compared to previous major releases of KD, it's a much, much more stable one. Now, Plasma 6 is done, but the team has already turned to Plasma 6.1 and some features that they plan to add. Uh, first, they will bring some form of session restore ability that can reopen the previous windows, the windows that you had previously opened before you logged out or shut down your session. It is what they call fake session restore because it just reopens the application. It doesn't necessarily reopen all your tabs and the pages you were visiting. That's left to the application to handle. So if it can remember what it did previously, it will. If it could not, it's just going to open in its neutral default state. This feature is also coming to X11. X11 already had session restore in Plasma, but it wasn't supported by every app. And so the apps that don't support it natively will have that fake session restore to at least reopen the application itself. Now, second, the overview and present windows effect will get a better layout algorithm, meaning that the windows will be displayed and scaled in a more logical and legible manner. You won't get one huge window and plenty of small ones or a stairway effect where there's plenty of empty screen space. Uh, it's apparently much, much better than the previous layouts that you could pick from. And on top of that, there are a few other touches. There's going to be a small animation when you're dragging a file onto a folder by holding the file over that folder on Dolphin. There's going to be a battery icon displayed for headsets connected to your computer everywhere where there's battery levels displayed. They're going to remove the refresh option on the right-click menu on the desktop that Obviously, it's KDE, you will still be able to re-enable it or to refresh by pressing F5. Dolphin will gain faster startup from 2 to 17%, and there are a few other things as well. So it looks like we're in for a nice ride. They're just not stopping at Plasma 6. Obviously, nobody expected them to stop there. Uh, but yeah, I'm still amazed that they can find other things to add to Plasma because it already does everything. So it's cool. We're gaining some new features. Again, that's nice. Now, in terms of the open web, it looks like Apple will be investigated by the European Commission over their decision to completely drop progressive web apps in the EU. If you haven't followed this topic, uh, Apple decided that to conform with the latest barrage of EU regulations on gatekeepers, they had to drop progressive web apps because they could not implement the necessary code to let them be opened in a new third-party browser with a third-party browser engine, whatever. It's just like malicious compliance and it's obvious. Uh, but the European Commission decided to take a deeper look at the issue. They've sent Apple and other app developers, especially web app developers, requests for more information to see if this is indeed malicious compliance with the Digital Markets Act. And the Open Web Advocacy, a non-profit organization, is also conducting an independent survey with developers to see how it will impact them, and they will send the answers uh, to that survey to the European Commission to help them reach their own conclusions. 
personally, I hope Apple will be found wanting here, because yes, progressive web apps might not be the most used things on iOS, but that's probably because Apple did whatever they could to ensure that they were just not a good experience on their platform. They limited these apps to using the Safari engine, and they refused to implement some of the necessary helpers and features that progressive web apps need. Now, using the Digital Markets Act to try and remove that option entirely is super underhanded. It's just another excuse to keep control over the platform by preventing third-party browsers to implement good support for progressive web apps. They didn't need to add code. They needed to support third-party browser engines and let these third-party browsers have the preference to be the default browser engine to open a progressive web app, period. All the checks and limitations that they put in place in the App Store for these third-party engines would be enough to warrant safety and security for progressive web apps. They didn't have to develop much apart from a preference, like you're creating a shortcut on your desktop, which browser do you want to use it with? That's it. Period. There was nothing to develop here. It was like two days work at most. So it's obviously malicious compliance. They do not want people to use web apps. They want them to use the native app store where Apple makes money. It's obvious. Everyone knows it. And I hope the EU can manage to find a way to force Apple to re-implement this support. It's not something everybody uses, but it's something that should be here because we need an open platform. We need those smartphones to be able to just run the web normally in good conditions and progressive web apps are part of that. Now let's talk open source and specifically open source funding. Jacob Kaplan Moss, he's one of the main developers on Django, wrote a very interesting blog post on that specific topic. Apparently it was prompted after he published a Mastodon post denouncing the very usual reactions that a lot of people have when someone is trying to make a living writing open source software. Uh, generally, someone will announce, hey, uh, to try and make money from the software that millions of people use, uh, we're gonna bring commercial features, or we're gonna build a Patreon, or we're gonna take some capital in, or I'm, I started a job at Microsoft and they let me work like two days a week on my open source project. And generally people, when they see that, they get very angry, they say that it's tainted, that the project will die, or, or that it's not the right way to create open source. So Jacob says that currently writing open source software is not sustainable. Open source projects simply do not have nearly enough paid maintainers compared to the number of users they have. He cites the examples of Python or Django used by hundreds of thousands or millions of people with only like mostly 10 full-time developers for Python and like two or one and a half on Django, which is insane if you think about it. And there are also plenty of other examples where a library is clearly the backbone of the modern web and servers and has like one people working on it on their free time. He also points out that, yes, in an ideal world, governments would recognize the crucial mission of open source and the advantages of pushing open source for them, and so they would fund these efforts. But he also says that we do not live in that world currently, and that in the meantime, pointing out that you should not seek private funding because open source should be funded by governments, it doesn't solve the problem. And he concludes by saying that currently, every single way that someone can find to develop open source software and get paid for it is a win. Whether it's a grant, whether it's being employed by a big tech company, whether it's raising capital through VC or having paid options, it's always a win. And right now, when you do 
any of that, all you get is mostly criticism. And he acknowledges that all of these avenues of funding have strings attached. If you have a Patreon, yes, Patreon does take a cut uh, of the funding because they have to run the platform. It's pretty normal. If you use VC, yes, you're basically selling your soul in the future down the line when VC decides to sell your company or do something untowards with it. If you work for a big tech company, they'll probably ask you at some point to make that open source project weird in a certain way so that they can take advantage of it. If you sell t-shirts, then yes, you're commercializing project. If you limit certain features to paid customers or you ask for people to pay for your open source project, then yes, you're basically adding an additional limitation. But it's also what makes those open source projects viable. If no one can make money off of open source, then open source will just have no developers left. We already have a problem in terms of manpower to work on open source projects and we need to solve it. So it's an interesting and nuanced read. I left a link to it in the show notes. It's like five to 10 minutes long uh, if you want to take the time to read it. I think it's a really, really important thing to have in mind. It also looks like us Linux users just cannot have nice things because of stupid legal requirements. AMD has been trying for a while to add HDMI 2.1 plus support to its open source kernel driver for Linux. This specification, this, this new update to the specification, uh, lets you do, for example, 4K at 120Hz or 5K at 240Hz. Basically, it's the, the latest specification of HDMI that lets you take advantage of very high resolution display and high frame rates. And currently, on Linux with an AMD GPU, you cannot do that because the drivers don't support it. But it's not because AMD is not developing these features. They actually have code that implements them. It's because the HDMI forum refuses these features to be implemented in an open source driver. The HDMI forum being the organization that controls and monitors the HDMI standard and the specifications. All of this is apparently linked to the fact that the HDMI forum closed public access to the HDMI spec in 2021, meaning that currently it's legally complicated or impossible to implement new HDMI features in an open source driver. Because if you do so, anyone can look at the code and learn the HDMI spec from it, which the HDMI forum doesn't want to. They want to keep that spec closed, probably because you have to pay to access it, I would think. Not sure, but that's probably the reason. So AMD engineers apparently spent months working with their legal team and the HDMI forum to try and come up with a solution. But every effort was turned down, even though they actually have the code to try and satisfy the requirements of that organization. And it is incredibly annoying, because HDMI is the display standard we have right now. Every TV, every monitor, everything, every GPU has HDMI ports. It's the norm, it's what everyone uses. And so as a standard that everyone uses, no organization like the HDMI forum should have the right to say whether you can implement that standard within open source drivers or not. They should not have a say in how the code is written or how uh, it is licensed. So now it means that if you really want to support open source, you should stop using HDMI and you should use DisplayPort, which is another arbitrary limitation that sucks. And it's also very worrying for the future, because if it's already annoying for the HDMI 2.1 plus spec, imagine when HDMI 3 spec comes out and it supports better displays or 
specific things linked to VR or AR or just has better frame rates or super interesting technologies. Well, we won't be able to have that on Linux, at least not in open source drivers, whatever the manufacturer. And this is just sad. It's a norm. Everyone should be able to implement it, especially open source. Like, it sucks and I just don't, well, I do understand it. It's, like, it's probably money related. Now we're gonna switch to better news on the GNOME front. Uh, it's been a while since I reported on GNOME's progress on the various features that they're implementing thanks to their recent 1 million euro grant. And so they have made good progress on a lot of things. Uh, among these, we have hardware accelerated encoding for screencasts, meaning that the screen recorder that GNOME ships will be able to use VA API or NVIDIA NVENC and also hardware accelerated encoding on ARM devices, meaning that if you use the native screen recorder on your GNOME computer, you'll be able to actually not completely kill your CPU and have decent recording frame rates by using the GPU, which is the thing that you should use to record your screen. This should land in GNOME 46 in March. GNOME will also apparently get a gestures API, presumably for GNOME 46 as well, it's probably going to be used only by GNOME Shell for now, but I think apps and other projects will be able to plug into it. Maybe extensions will be able to tap into it to add certain gestures or configure them. What is not coming to GNOME 46 is improved fractional scaling support for X Wayland apps. This is just not ready yet. Variable refresh rate support is also not ready yet. It will come later. And they also wanted to fix certain issues with NVIDIA GPUs in WebKit GTK, which is the rendering engine for Epiphany or GNOME Web. This is also not going to be coming in GNOME 46. There are some progress, there are some progress on these features, but they won't be ready for March. The new accessibility framework that GNOME is working on, that is apparently desktop agnostic, is also receiving a lot of work, as is the Orca screen reader. There's also a new port for the GNOME online accounts. Home encryption, your home directory encryption, is also being implemented using systemd uh, home encrypt, I think it's called. And there are also improved notifications in the work. All of this will come later. So that's a lot of pretty nice stuff, some big features. It's too bad that they can't all make it into GNOME 46, but I guess that leaves some more things to get excited about for GNOME 47 and later. And those are big projects. I, I felt like GNOME, since maybe GNOME 42, was a bit stagnant, like they implemented some interesting things, but they didn't really move the desktop forward much. But with variable refresh rate, hardware accelerated encoding for recording your screen, better fractional scaling, fixing problems with NVIDIA, a new accessibility framework, you have a lot of stuff to look forward to. So it's nice to see that GNOME is also really making some solid progress on important features. Now we have some disappointing news uh, from Automatic, that's the company who owns Tumblr and WordPress. They announced that they will start selling user data to Midjourney and OpenAI uh, in order to basically make some money from the user posts and user blogs that they host. Uh, it's apparently a very messy process as the company is gathering all that data and they're apparently compiling a bunch of user posts that shouldn't even be in the data that these AI companies will get, including content that hasn't been made public in Tumblr blogs or WordPress websites. Automatic says that by default they block most AI scrapers and that they will only share content that is currently public and hosted on WordPress.com and Tumblr sites that didn't opt out 
of that sharing. So don't worry if you just use WordPress on something that you host yourself, you're not, you're not concerned by this. They won't share your data. It's only if you host your website on WordPress.com. But there's still a big problem. This is an opt-out, not an opt-in for a process that has been tacked on recently. When you created these websites yourself to share content, you probably never thought at the time that your data was going to go to an AI company to train their model. So this should be a separate opt-in. It should not be opt-out. I'm pretty sure that having this as an opt-out is illegal, at least in the EU. Second, it looks like while they say that they're only sharing content that is public, they're not apparently able to only grab data that is public, according to a leaked internal uh, memo or email that says that, yes, they did grab a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be public. And it's unclear if this data has already been sent to those AI companies or if it was just, hey, we did a test run to scrape the data and we're finding that our tool to scrap this data is just not good enough, like we're grabbing stuff we shouldn't be grabbing. So obviously websites that aren't hosted by WordPress themselves should not be affected by this. But if you use WordPress.com as your hosting solution, it might be a good time to check what you're allowing WordPress to do with your data and maybe use that opt-out. And it really feels like the internet will never not be shitty. We escaped the Web3 and crypto craze very narrowly with all this terrible, terrible technology that had no real practical application, we basically sort of solved privacy-related issues thanks to the GDPR, at least in the EU. It's not perfect, but it's better. We're sort of solving gatekeeping in the EU as well with the DMA, the Digital Markets Act. It's making things a bit better, not perfect, but better. But now we're just dropping into AI with all the terrible practices regarding user privacy, data management, and just the general property of what you write online. It's really discouraging, if I'm honest, and it really makes you want to just return to the time where you just hosted everything yourself. Every time you use a service to do something for you, it always turns to crap. So yeah, very discouraging stuff. I, it's really annoying to just have all this barrage of, of user data being sold without any consent. Like, just, hey, you consented to this 10 years ago, even though we never really said it was going to be for an AI because we didn't know it ourselves. It, it just sucks. Now, we also have a Thunderbird development update, which is better. You see, I'm trying to, like, do one shitty news and one better news to try and just not be down the whole time. So there's a new development update on Thunderbird with some interesting stuff. First is Exchange support, because Thunderbird wants to natively support Microsoft Exchange, and things are apparently moving along on that front. They say it's not moving as fast as they hoped, but it's still making progress. They've created a repo called Thundercell, in which they share all the first draft of that code, and they have plans to use this repo to store all the future code that they'll create for libraries and modules that they want to include into Thunderbird at some point, but isn't quite ready to be part of the main development branch. They're also progressing on the Thunderbird Sync feature that will let you share all your Thunderbird settings, tags, maybe extensions between devices. 
They're using the Mozilla Sync backend, the one that is used for your Firefox account, but they don't want to store all this data in your Firefox account. They want to store it in a separate place. So if someone accesses your Firefox account, they can't also get access to your Thunderbird account, which I think is a sane decision to make. They apparently have a working implementation of that syncing feature in the daily development snapshots of Thunderbird, but there are apparently bugs and limitations for now, so it's just not ready yet. They're also working on building an official Snap package for Thunderbird. They already officially released Thunderbird as a Flatpak, but since Ubuntu doesn't support Flatpak and Flathub, and they have their own stuff, and Ubuntu is used by a lot of people, they're testing a Snap package for Thunderbird as well. They're currently testing it in beta, they plan to offer a stable and a beta channel as well for that package. So it's really cool to see a project having some clear goals and managing to reach them, Thunderbird feels like a really, really well-managed pro project these days, and it's insane to see how it just rose from the dead five or seven years ago, and is now a major open source thing that is just progressing super fast and implementing things that users actually want, which is good for a change. Okay, and let's finish this episode with the gaming news. So first, great news for NVK, the open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA. It is now Vulkan 1.3 conformant, meaning that it now supports the latest version of the Vulkan API. And so with that, Mesa 24.1 will build that driver by default and use it by default instead of flagging it as experimental. Now, it does require the latest development snapshot of the Linux kernel 6.8 to perform adequately, but when a distro ships 6.8 and Mesa 24.1, you will be using NVK out of the box on top of the latest Nuvo drivers, and that is the first time in a very long while that the open source driver stack for NVIDIA will be good and will actually be usable. Now, on top of that, NVK also gained new Vulkan extensions, and they've also started work on a common Vulkan runtime for all Mesa drivers. The goal for this is to have a single implementation for stuff like shaders and pipelines, so every new driver that needs to work with Vulkan doesn't have to redevelop all of that stuff, which is cool because if we see a new GPU maker or if there's a new ARM-based GPU or GPU we see in ARM-based devices, they won't have to write the entire Vulkan driver from scratch. They can plug into this framework and basically have access to a lot of stuff for free, putting that into air quotes. Now, we also have some more work on NVK. They will support rebar or resizable bar. This is a feature that lets the CPU access the GPU's memory in its entirety to reduce the number of transfers between the two and thus reduce any bottleneck effect and improve performance. If you don't have rebar support, it means that the CPU can only get data from the GPU's memory in little chunks of 256 megabytes, which was a limitation that made sense when GPUs had like 256 megs of RAM, but now that they have four, six, eight, or 12 gigs, it's a big limitation. It means that the CPU has to work overtime to request data all the time from the GPU instead of just accessing the memory in a large chunk and getting done with it. So NVK will now be aware of whether your system supports rebar or not because it's not a standard, not every motherboard supports it, it's part of the PCIe standard and not every PCIe implementation supports that. 
but if your system supports it, then NVK will be able to use it. And this works in tandem with the necessary interfaces in the Nouveau driver uh, that enables that, uh, that will land in the kernel 6.8. So basically, when you get 6.8 and Mesa 24.1, we should get a very, very good NVIDIA open source driver. I'm pretty sure the performance will be very solid. I'll be looking at benchmarks on Foronix because I'm sure they'll publish them way before everything is officially available for everyone. Uh, but I'm thinking we're going to reach like 60 to 70% of the proprietary NVIDIA driver. And this is at around the point where a lot of people would prefer just using the open source driver and not bother with the potential issues of the proprietary one. And finally, we also have some more progress on the Wine Wayland driver, this time to enable basic OpenGL support. The driver already supports Vulkan pretty well, which arguably is way more important than OpenGL because Wine's primary use case these days is for gaming. Most Linux gaming uses DXVK and VKD3D and so relies on Vulkan, not on OpenGL. But now there's a new merge request that will let Wine run OpenGL apps under Wayland natively. The support is apparently far from complete, there are a lot of features still needing to be implemented, but at least it will be usable. Now hopefully this Wayland driver can reach feature parity with the X11 based implementation of Wine, because that would lift the last remaining barrier for gaming on Wayland. It's pretty cool stuff, uh, and you might think it's just Linux gaming, who cares, like it's not super interesting, but Linux gaming is pretty important these days. It's a major driver of Linux adoption in mainstream devices, especially with the Steam Deck, and it needs to work well with Wayland if we want Wayland to be adopted more quickly. And we have no choice for Wayland to be adopted. We will never use X11 for another 20 years. We need Wayland to be finalized and perfect. X-Wayland isn't a bad way to get games to play, but it's always better to have a Wayland native implementation. Not only because X-Wayland adds a bit of overhead over just running a game through Wayland, but also because in testing, Wayland native games perform way better than their X11 implementation. So when Wine and Proton run natively under Wayland and we don't need X-Wayland, we're probably going to see an FPS boost for gaming compared to playing the same titles on X11. So, and also X-Wayland is just not that well supported by some graphics drivers. I don't want to say it's Nvidia, but it is Nvidia. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, all the links I used are in the show notes. And if you want to help me make more of these episodes, you can support the show as well for as little as $1 per month or just a one-time donation. All the links are in the show notes as well. And you get plenty of benefits if you support me on Patreon or YouTube memberships as well. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And I guess you will hear me in the next one next week. Bye.